Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to the podcast. A couple of episodes ago, my son Jackson read a story from a little booklet that I have called Howdy Folks Howdy, Volume 1, Stories of Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys by the Men Who Wore the Hats, compiled by Doug Hutchins. And after Jackson read that, I thought, you know what? I need to see if I can get a hold of Doug Hutchins and ask him permission to read this on the air. So I I got to digging around on the internet and found Doug and sent him an email. And uh, I've gone back and forth with him with a couple of emails and got to thinking how interesting it would be to get him on the phone and record a little interview. So that's what this episode is today. This is the Doug Hutchins Bluegrass Boy interview. So here in just a minute, we're going to uh, switch over to the telephone, and I'm going to just tell you up front, I had some problems uh, trying to record the audio this way. I've, I've talked about this some in the past where I've used Skype, and I've used Facebook chat, and I've recorded some straight off the telephone, and that's what we tried to do today. We had had some technical problems, I'll tell you. So we kind of cut it short and decided to come back at a later date and continue the story. So we get through how Doug got started, how he got, how he became a member of the Bluegrass Boys and the Bill Monroe birthday parties, the Bluegrass Boys commemorative buckles. We talk about all this stuff, but we never really got into uh, Doug's time at Gibson. And that's that's an important part of the story. And I, I would also love to talk to him about um, his his radio show back in the, I guess it was in the 80s and 90s. Um, syndicated bluegrass radio show. It would be very fascinating. So we're going to try to um, solve some of these technical problems and do a second edition of this later. But for now, let's just go straight to the the raw audio from my conversation today with bluegrass boy, Doug Hutchins. On the telephone today, we have a guest with us, a guy named Doug Hutchins. And Doug Hutchins is an actual bluegrass boy. He played with Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys, I think in 1971. And he's had a long history in the world of bluegrass music. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Uh, if you don't mind, how about just starting out and tell us a little bit about how you got started playing bluegrass music. Well, I, I grew up on uh, the Virginia-North Carolina border. If you draw a line between Roanoke, Virginia, and Western Salem, North Carolina, I, I live about 300 yards from the border. And back in the early 60s when uh, I was growing up, we used to have uh, Lester Flint and Earl Scruggs uh, on TV on uh, Saturday night and again on Monday night, Saturday night down in uh, Greensboro, or excuse me, Winston-Salem, and then on Monday it was up in Roanoke. 
back in those days, they, that was before the days of the VCRs and uh, all the satellite uh, communication. What they would do is they would tape the shows in Nashville and literally send the film by bus. And that was also in the days before UPS. They would go into uh, Weston, they'd go to Roanoke, then they'd go on to Charleston, West Virginia, uh, and they'd just what they call bicycle them around. But the way I used to watch Flatten Scrubs every uh, couple of times every week. Of course, we also had Don Reno and Red Smiley every morning on TV. Right. Mm-hmm. And a couple of uncles that had uh, played back in the, I guess, the 40s and 50s, and that had three or four instruments over at my grandmother's house. I used to spend the night with her, and I, I'd get up there and kind of plonk around on them every now and then. But then, I guess it was in '63, I got my first uh, guitar. I was uh, helped prime the back on and saved enough money and got my first guitar. And then that year for Christmas, I got my first banjo. And, and it just kind of work came from there, you know. Talk a little bit about how you became an actual. Bluegrass boy. Well, I worked, uh, uh, well, first of all, I, the first festival I ever went to was down at Lake Norman Music Hall. That was in November of, I guess, maybe 68. And uh, I had seen Bill there. I'd seen him a little, little bit before up at Roanoke, Virginia, the American Theater there. But as far as knowing him and then knowing me, I didn't. But then uh, I ran into Calvin Robbins up there. Calvin Robbins was Butch Robbins' dad, and Butch had just been uh, given his draft notice to go into service. And Calvin asked me how would I like to go to Bean Blossom next year, and I said, man, I'd love it. Calvin was, uh, he taught electricity up in uh, Radford, Virginia, and he would go up to Bean Blossom a couple of weeks ahead of time to help string uh, lights through the park, also to help put the speaker, uh, Silver Spurs Ragsdale was doing the sound up there, and he used to do a lot of rodeos. And what he would do, instead of using the big speakers like they do today, he had these bull horns that he would put all through the trees. And he had to run wires to all of them. So we, we would go up and do that and then uh, mow grass and just get the park in, you know, in shape for the festival. And it's the first week or so I was up there, uh, Bill and the guys would go out and play on the weekends, and then they'd come in, usually Monday, and they would work part of the week and then go back out and play for the next weekend. And I was out uh, mowing there, and uh, Bill come up and asked me, said, who, who hired you? I said, well, nobody. He said, well, who's going to pay you? I said, well, I don't guess there'd be no pay in it. <laughs> but every evening we would get together and pick a little while. So we got to, you know, get to know each other through just working there. Cause, and, you know, Bill, he, he was he was 60 years old then, but he could still outwork most of the other guys, you know. Yeah. And so I got to know him that way and then uh, worked all through the festival there. And then uh, that fall, I went to uh, Motor Beach at the uh, Bluegrass Festival down there. And of course, uh, by that time, a lot of times when it would be a show, he'd ask me to come, come up and play a banjo tune with him. Well, that year in Motor Beach, he asked me all three days to come up and play a tune. He'd never done that before. And on Sunday afternoon, I was getting ready to leave and come home, and I'd go back to college, and he asked me, he said, well, how would you like to work with me next summer? I said, well be fine what will i be doing he said well i don't know but i'll give, get you a job so uh he said well you, you come down to nashville in the spring we'll work it out so i 
called him up the next, the next spring and I uh, went down in March and he said, well, just go on up to Bean Blossom and work with Bertha and Birch, that's his brother and sister there at the park. And until we get the festival done, then we'll figure it out from there. So I went on up um, about the uh, 1st of May. And so I spent, you know, three weeks up there. And, of course, like, again, Bill and them would come in during the week. And then they'd be gone back on the weekend. But uh, we was doing all sorts of stuff there, getting the place ready for the festival. And then at the end of the festival there, uh, he was calling everybody on the bus and paying them. And he called me on and said, well, how much do I owe you? I said, well, just whatever. And he said, well, how much are you going to cost you to go to school next year? I said, well, eight or nine hundred dollars. And so he counted me out nine one hundred dollar bills and told me to bring bring that home and put it in the bank and meet them in Roanoke the next Friday. They would stop in Bristol when they come through, and then I'd meet them up to truck stop at Roanoke. So I went on and uh, well, I asked him at uh, at Bean Blossom there. When I, he said, "Well, then you travel the rest of the summer with us." And I said, "Well, what am I going to be doing?" He said, "Well, you can, you can drive your bus." Uh, you work on the farm, uh, I want to use machinery, don't you? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, you can learn to drive a bus. And I said, you can sell records. And, and it, they just put a new generator on the bus, sir. And said, the main thing is make sure that that generator has gas at oil all the time. Right. So I thought, okay, I was 18 years old and too, too dumb to be scared. And so anyway, we went on up to... Um, I went to Roanoke, and they got on the bus with him, and Travis Stewart had just left the band the week before. And I expected him to be in there playing guitar, but uh, he talked to Danny Jones, and so Danny was on the bus there, and that would have been his first night in Pennsylvania there. So we went up to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It used to be called Shindig at Cripple Creek in the summertime, and in the wintertime it was Shindig in the barn. They had Lancaster, the, well, I think they called it the Guernsey Barn. But uh, anyway, we got up there, and about 30 minutes before the show, Bill came on and said, have you ever played in the bass? And I said, well, no, not really. And uh, he said, well, when you go out there and let Joe Stewart show you how to play Tallahassee. And he said, we'll open up with that tonight, and you can play bass, and then you take the, uh, his fiddle and go set up the records. I go, okay. <laughs> well, the week before, I had forgotten there was a... A little a band up in Indiana there they called the Brown County Boys. There's three brothers and another guy. They'd won the band contest, and one of the things that went in the band contest is they got to do three numbers before Bill on Saturday night. Well, the three, uh, two of the brothers came up to Calvin's campsite uh, late in the afternoon there and said, well, we won't get to play tonight. What's the problem? Well, two of the brothers had got mad and went home. <laughs> and so they needed a mandolin player and a bass player. And there was a guy there from up around Columbus, Ohio, named Daryl Sampson, who was a real hot mandolin player. And so they worked it out where he was going to play mandolin, but they still didn't have a bass player. Calvin looked over me and said, well, Doug can try to play bass. And I had literally never, never played bass at all. <laughs> but the first thing they was going to do was going to be in A, and the next two was going to be in B. And uh, we borrowed a bass from uh, Buck White and the girls. They was camped beside us there. And Calvin took one of these old Bill Russell guitar capos, which is an elastic type thing, and turned it around backwards and pulled it down on the bass to where A would be. <laughs> and so I, I, 
Celebrations came about, and you know a little bit about that. Okay, yeah, we we started those in uh, I guess '82. Uh, Bill had had some pretty bad health problems in '81, and had some surgery, and you know it, it was it was kind of nip and tuck for a little while. But 
uh, on Kenny Baker's birthday, the 26th of June uh, of the 82, uh, up at a little festival in uh, Kentucky, called, or actually in Tennessee, called Jellicoe Creek. Paul Mullins had put it on there, and it was Kenny's birthday, and Bill and, and uh, Paul Mullins was good friends, and he said, if you've got an old fiddle that's just tore all the pieces, and Paul said, I think there's one hanging in the barn might have a hornet's nest in it. So anyway, they wrapped that thing up and, <laughs> and fixed it all up and gave it to Kenny on stage uh, as a joke. You know, of course, Bill, Bill gave him a, a set of gold cufflinks and a $50 bill along with it. But, uh, you know, Kenny, he was, he was, you know, I just had a good time. But Bill had such a good time, you know, you know, putting all that together. And I thought right then, well, we need to do something for Bill's birthday this year. And uh, not long before that is the case that Ted Taylor did for him back in 64, had Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass music, uh, that was upside down on the case because he, he didn't realize he was doing it until he'd already gone too far. But uh, Ted Taylor made that case for him, and Bill had quit using it. And I thought, and then using one just the shape of the mandolin, I thought, well, that, that's not the way Bill ought to be going. And so I got to call her around talking and uh, talk to Harry Sparks up in, uh, around Cincinnati. And uh, Harry said, well, why not have uh, John Paganoni build him a case and then, then have Nick Boone down in Louisville cover it with leather and put his name on So we started that the, like, right along the 1st of July that year. Uh, Paganoni built the case, we sent it to Louisville. Nick did the leather work and then sent it back to John for the the uh, inside of it. So we gave him the case the first year there. Uh, that was up at Louisville at the Kentucky Fried Chicken Festival. I'd called up and made arrangements to, to do the presentation on stage. As a matter of fact, that's on uh, Tom Adler's uh, YouTube site. Uh, but that was the first year, and then the next year... I guess we did the saddle, and we did it down at Mason's Restaurant, a little uh, restaurant that they eat a lot of meals at in Goodersville. And uh, then the next year, we did it out at this Hall of Fame uh, that he just opened up around Music Valley Drive, and we gave him a bunch of plaques with pictures of the Bluegrass Boys in it. Um, then, let's see, the next year, I think we did it probably in uh, Owensboro, we gave him a mantle clock and then also a, a set of fireplace pokers. Well, the fireplace pokers, I'm sorry to say, was the ones that was used to beat his mandolin up in 84. Yeah. Uh, so I, I always kind of regretted that, but Bill, I talked to him about it and he said, well, the only thing I regret, regret about it was because I still got him over in Gallatin at the police department for evidence. You're the guy who put together the commemorative belt buckles to honor all of the bluegrass boys, anybody who had ever been a bluegrass boy, and created these belt buckles. There's a picture of one on the, on the cover of Butch Robbins' book, What I Know About What I Know. And uh, you're the guy behind those buckles. Tell us about the, uh, the bluegrass boy buckles. I'd asked uh, and, uh, the, the fellow that worked with me at the college up there, by the name of Fred Huffman, was a real good designer. He'd done a bunch of things for NASCAR and different ones. 
but uh, I had uh, seen them uh, talk to Mr. Grant Turner down in Nashville, and he had showed me a belt buckle that Ernest Tubbs Troubadours gave him. Uh, Ernest, when he, he signed on with the band, after you traveled a certain amount of miles or a certain amount of time, he gave you a belt buckle. And it uh, was called the Fraternity of Troubadours. Uh, Mr. Grant's used to be on display down at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop on Lower Broadway. I'm not sure it's still there or not, but he was for a long time. Anyway, I got the idea for that from Mr. Grant Turner and uh, found that uh, one of the best buckle makers in the country is called Award Design Metals out in Noble, Oklahoma. So we worked up the, the, the uh, blueprint for it and everything, sent it out there. It was gonna cost about 6,000 bucks for 500 buckles. Well, so I decided, well, I wanted to get some sponsors in on it, so I asked uh, Pickett Magazine, who was Roger Seminoff, was uh, with that at the time. I asked MCA Records, I asked Gibson Guitars, Martin Guitars, the Grand Ole Opera, and Bluegrass Unlimited. Seminoff called and said, well, they'd love to be a part of it, and we was gladly paid the $1,500, but they would have to take do, be in charge of it on Nashville now. Hmm. They had done a couple of those uh, uh, picking or Fritz award shows on there. Yeah. And I said, well, thank, thank you, but no thank you. I've handled this for the last few years. I think we can do that. So they didn't, wasn't a part of it. Well, MCA Records, Embry Gordy Jr. called me and said, Doug said, love to be a part of this thing, but MCA's got a standard policy that there's no money put into any artist unless it's directly re uh, uh, going with a release of a new project. I said, thank you. <laughs> then I had uh, Mike Longworth from Martin's Guitars. I'd known him for a bunch of years. And he called and said, Doug said, we'd love to be a part of this. I said, Chris Martin, there ain't no way he's going to put uh, money into something with a Gibson mandolin on it. I said, well, thank <laughs> you again. Then uh, Charlie Darrington, he was, he was a little miffed at me that I, had, I didn't think that his Granada reissue, the very first one, was was up to snuff, and so he never did pass it, they pack it along to Henry there Gibson. So, uh, but then Mr. Bud Wendell at the Opry called and uh, said, where do I send the check? And Pete Cockendall said the same thing. So here I had uh, $3,000 of a, about a $9,000 project where was going to do the whole works, and then what money was left was going to put it into the IBMA trust fund. But as it ended up, I ended up only, having, only uh, getting 250 buckles made, and then I ended up selling the top tension number seven badger to pay for the you know for the rest of it out of my own pocket. But anyway, we we was able to give Bill the uh, solid silver buckle that that night on Nashville now, and then all the the bluegrass boys have got brass buckles. Back in uh, the early 80s. Uh, 81 or 82, I had a uh, idea that, well, actually before that, I guess it was late 70s, uh, I fixed up a questionnaire of trying to find all the guys who had worked with Bill through the years and uh, sent it out to a lot of folks. Of course, there's a lot of folks that they, they, they would fill in for a show or two or something like that. But actual band members, I was able to find about uh, 80, or 85, 80 or 85 of them at the time. I think Tom has come up with an actual number of 149 yeah. since then. But I had a, a pretty accurate list of, of re 
regular bluegrass boys, plus fill-ins. Now, there's a gentleman uh, in California has got a website, or he did, I haven't been on it in a while, that he, he got a lot of the same names and, that I had on there. And then, of course, with, as far as Tom in the book, uh, I gave Tom access to all the questionnaires that I had. Uh, I just I just sent the whole works up to him. I for years I had planned on doing a book about Bill myself, but uh, you know it just uh, it, it was on the back burner. And uh, Tom had been working on it so long, and so I just gave him access to everything I had. Well, tell me a little bit about how do folks have it. Well, that was uh, our first year up at Rosine. James Monroe called me, I guess, in 99 and asked me if I could help put together a Bluegrass Boy reunion for a festival he was going to do for Bill up at uh, Rosine on Memorial Day weekend. And I said, well, I'll see what I can do. And, of course, we didn't have a budget or anything. Uh, but, you know, we had, I guess, 12 or 15 guys that showed up. And we just sit and, you know, I kind of acted as a moderator and would ask a, ask a question and let them talk, you know. Then we'd play a tune every now and then. And uh, I had taken a couple of video cameras and just set them up and let them run, you know. Not any high-quality video by any means, yeah. but at least I got to you know, count the stories. And uh, also that first year, I thought, well, we need to commemorate this in some way. So we also started doing some Bluegrass Boy prints. Uh, back when I had, had the first uh, uh, birthday celebration in Louisville, I didn't realize why I did it, but I had hired a, a professional photographer by the name of Jim Sullivan to come up, and he shot probably a couple of hundred shots that had never been seen by anybody else. And there was one real, real neat shot I thought of Bill kind of looking stoic and looking off into the uh, sky. And so we took that one. <clears throat> And then uh, we added, uh, John Hartford gave me, giving me some uh, pictures of Uncle Penn. So we uh, went to Willard Gayhart, who's a great pen and uh, a pencil artist here in Virginia, and uh, asked him if he could, you know, take my ideas and, you know, hand it back to me. And he did. So what, we did, what I ended up doing was where we didn't have a budget for that, I was able to pay each guy in some prints. And then they would take the prints and sell them. The prints were, I mean, it was a really nice picture. Uh, and, you know, Willard sold prints for $30 each. So that way I could give the guys something so they could, you know, pay their expenses and things like that. Right. But the first one we did uh, in Rosine, and in our next couple of years, what we did, we took uh, did an, uh, kind of a takeoff on one of Bill's tunes for each of the different prints we did. The first one we did called Late in the Evening, and the second one was, uh, 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 it was on the Moonlight Night, Blue Moon, Kentucky. And then we went on down to uh, Kentucky Walks, and then Goodbye Old Pal, and I'm on my way back to the old home, and then... Uh, uh, the Rocky Road Blues, and then we just got one finished up here not long ago uh, uh, for Rawhide. But uh, that was that, uh, the initial idea was do one each year until Bill's hundredth birthday. Well, the festival only lasted for about five years there, and you know, I with uh, trying to put the different stories together and stuff. Everybody kept saying, "Well, somebody needs to write some of this stuff down." 
Well, I went and looked at a few of Bill's old uh, sign books, and they was usually 32 pages. So I paid a lady uh, here, Kathy Riggs, to take and uh, transcribe some of the, the videos I had and put it on paper. So I went to uh, uh, some friends up in Eastern Kentucky where I'd worked at Alice Lord College, and they took that and put it into the 32-page book at Howdy Folks Howdy. And it's basically just stories. Uh, we call it uh, it's by the men who wore the hats. Yeah, I'm holding one in my hand right here. Jackson read a little story out of it on the uh, podcast, uh, I think two episodes ago. And I was just curious if you still have those available. I don't know. Uh, I learned with doing that. Learned with doing that that you know, the world of publishing is not really where I need to spend a lot of time. You know, I'm I'm relatively creative, but uh, I'm more the idea person when it comes down to being the business person. Uh, I need a handler. Doug, I appreciate you being on here. I know we had a little bit of technical uh, difficulties. I I would love to get you back on the show. Uh, at a later time to talk about your your bluegrass radio show that ran for so long and also your time at Gibson. So we'll save that for a future episode. Just want to say thanks uh, from all the listeners here at Grass Talk Radio. I appreciate you being on the show. Thanks a bunch. Sure, that sounds great. Lo- love to join you anytime. I hope you guys enjoyed that little interview with Doug Hutchins. You know, the bluegrass world is full of so many people who have been active in the music in various ways that to get the complete story of bluegrass, you really have to talk to about 200, 300, 400 people. It's it's a big big little world. It is a little world, but it's a big little world. And you're part of it, too. Anyway, thanks to Doug. Thanks to my Patreon supporters. Appreciate you guys not going through the list this time around. Thank you to anybody that's been over to my site, bradleylaird.com, and scoped out of any of my instructional materials and also my free goodies like the Ten Commandments Discussed free ebook. People keep downloading it. They people do love something free anyway y'all have a good good uh, week and i'll be back in the next episode thanks you to ashes and dust to dust show me that woman any man can trust but now she's gone i don't worry